Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our third year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi folks and welcome back to Strength to be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. This is episode 208, Classic Spotlight Series, Thoughts on Vaclav Havel. Now I've done my best to, to make sure I pronounce his name correctly, because there's a big difference between English and, and, and speaking Czech, that's for sure. But even though I spelled it correctly, it's often mispronounced, I think, especially by people outside of the of the country over there. And if there's anything I've learned over the years, besides world travel and having a perspective outside of America, is my last name was Rossi, and you would not believe how many times people spell it or say it wrong, to the point where you, you get annoyed after a while. I mean, it's five letters, come on. You know, and it's probably the same thing he would probably say too. It's six letters. Come on, so I like to be able to spare, spell it and and of course pronounce that correctly. Okay, now uh, Vatov Havel was a Czech writer and playwright who's particularly known for for his plays. Now, there's a lot to go through in this particular show in in a short period of time because so much has happened. Uh, in uh, in the course of his uh, his past, the present, the future, now so many things have changed over and over again. So it really becomes a, a quite an incredible story. Okay, uh, I wanted to bring um, him up onto this show in the classic spotlight series, not just for his writing, which was important in itself. Don't get me wrong, because this is the literary show. But also, he's one of those few writers that had went beyond the scope of writing into, I guess you could say, uh, our real life and in reality. So, um, and and he did it in a in a successful manner, by the way. So, I wanted to uh, definitely bring him on the show because he's one of the very few examples of what we're going to be talking about is how somebody makes that transition from being. Somebody that's first uh, told that they're a dissident and they should stop their writing to somebody that's later imprisoned and then somebody later that leaves and becomes a, a public persona, both uh, in the in the enemy state of communism at the time, and then of course as a as a civilian and, and, and also later on as a, as a politician. So it's an it's an incredible uh, transition, much much different than anybody else has really had gone through in in history. So he really stands out, singular to all of this. So let's break it on down here. So we'll find out some interesting things about him. Some that a lot of people I don't think really even realize. We take a lot of what Havel has done and said for granted, and not understand you know where he came from, what he was thinking, what he was trying to do, and in many cases what he was trying not to do. And why he was so so successful at all of it. Okay, all right. So, uh, Václav Havel was born in uh, October the fifth, nineteen thirty-six. Okay, he is considered at this point now because uh, he he died uh, about ten years ago. Uh, is uh, not only a Czech statesman but also a, a writer and and what they consider a former dissident. Not all dissidents back in the days of the communists were imprisoned. Uh, some of them with this dissonance and, and they wind up staying under a type of a house arrest and still was able to work and do other things even though they might have banned their writing or even some of their activities but in his particular case uh, they did all of that and imprisonment so um, let's go a little bit in, in the beginning of his life and then we can go from there okay now uh, Václav Havel is different than most people in this regard uh, many of them had came from either uh, the lower middle class or maybe even, in many instances, they themselves were, were socialist or communist and then transferred over through the brutal experience of those systems, which do not work, by the way, uh, to see the reality and then they wind up becoming people who are interested in democracy and need it because they understand that it 
even though it might not be perfect, still is more a guarantee of freedom, liberty, and, and prosperity for people than any other system. And they wind up actually becoming one of those people, becoming somebody that's uh, once a communist to a capitalist. Well, Mr. Hammer was different than most of those because he's a son, well, he was the son, of, of a restaurateur there who owned property as well and at the then at the time that was Czechoslovakia before it broke up and we'll talk a little bit on that show so you understand that all right so he was already somebody that had a history of capitalism somebody had a history of property ownership somebody had a history of understanding freedom and then understanding how all of that can dissolve in a moment once your country is taken over by an entire system that says that now you owning something is evil. Uh, you speaking your mind is, is evil. You coming from parents, which they used to call bourgeois, basically middle class people who are trying to, trying to make a living owning a restaurant. You know, they call him wealthy, but I don't know what that word really means. It's all relevant, I guess, to your country. So maybe in Czechoslovakia, owning a restaurant was wealthy. I don't know. In America, it's a it's a normal thing. It's nothing. Uh, it, it's it's nothing to be ashamed of. It is certainly nothing to you know to brag about either. It's just the business, you know. But nevertheless, that's where he came from. So he had a, a real grounding of that from his, from his father and and from understanding that it's certainly not normal to be in a place that you loved and you've grown up in and now suddenly uh literally overnight because if there's anything overnight it's when the when the nazi or a communist regime takes over your country <laughs> it don't take long before everything is gone that you that you know and, and loved it, they, they move fast these people okay so literally overnight uh suddenly this this guy's in trouble you know he was barely was able to finish high school uh, and, and go on to the university uh, because of all the problems that they caused, mainly because you know those are places you have to pay for, and now his parents suddenly don't have any money because they're losing everything because it's taken away because the government doesn't want you to do that. Because you remember, a government like that, it's all about control, and of course they can't have control unless they take over everything. So they want you to depend on them, not the other way around. Where if you work for yourself, you're depending on yourself. Well. In this particular case, that's that's what they want because that's even considered evil. So he he finally finishes college and then he winds up becoming a, a stagehand at one of the uh, theatrical companies there in, in 1959. And then at that point, he started writing plays, and this is what he becomes famous for: writing plays about what was going on. Uh, and then later on, he he winds up getting some of these produced, and this is where he gets in trouble because what happens is. Less than 10 years after that, in 1968, that's what they have. You know, it's with the, with the newspapers, with the media, and even now, I think the historians are now coined it as the Prague Spring. Pretty much when people sort of saying, hey, because it's about like 12 years after communists took over, this isn't working for us. We don't like this. This, is, this isn't cool. And they start protesting. Well, the clamptown happens from the from the Czechoslovakian government, where they just literally start shooting people and arresting people, putting tanks out on the street, break that whole movement up. And, and it wasn't even a movement, because that's the unusual thing about a lot of these so-called revolutions in these communist countries. There wasn't all that revolutionary. Oftentimes, they were simply asking for a little more freedom, a little bit more understanding, a little more more room to breathe. But you can't have those things in a system that wants to control everything, including how many times you breathe. So I guess that's really what these protesters never seem to understand until later on, that there is no way to broker any compromise with, with folks like this, because there is no compromise. You wasn't going to get any freedom under a Nazi system. You're certainly not going to get any freedom over a communist system of any sort. How could they? It would be against their entire entire doctrine and entire ideology and but nevertheless he, he he joined that thinking that you know that could do something but nope the uh the, the soviet russians jumped into that and, and pretty much pushed the you know the czechoslovakians to, to get involved in it and, and both of them were out there on the streets doing that killing people imprisoning people so suddenly his plays are banned his passport is confiscated and he's in and out of jail a number of times. Uh, I, I think that the, the historians have said that from their best count, in total, 
um, he uh, he served from 1979 to 1983, okay, at least four years in prison. But if you add all the other visits he had, you know, it's probably it's probably closer. I I feel to like five or five and a half. You know, depending on our records and, and the information we have, you know. But you know, if for argument's sake, we know for sure he had a four-year stretch in prison. But uh, I believe it's a little longer because there were other times where he was locked up and then they let him go. All right, and most of the times it was just because he wrote plays about the situation. One of his plays that I I I read later on, and when I was a uh, when I was a little older, after getting out of a uh, my own uh, high school, in this particular case, uh, it would be exactly 20 years later that I read this play. And ironically, I read this play from an English translation of the French translation of the Czech language that he wrote it in. So that's, you know, it's good enough for me in terms of what it would say because uh, I, I, was comfortable, I was comfortable with that. But it's the Garden Party. It's one he's really, really famous for. But it's also the one that literally explains from the internal side of a family what happens when a society starts changing this way and what that does to you. What it does to your family dynamic, eventually what it does to your life, obviously as it cuts down your options, you know, and your freedoms to where, you know, you don't even know who you are anymore, which is what those people want to happen, because that's how they control things. Either you're going to eventually break down and give in to them and be one of their puppets or robots, or you're going to be fodder for their, gu their, their gunfire one day, or you're just going to be breaking rocks in, in jail, because that's what's going to happen. You don't have too many options, unfortunately. But it is important to note it is important to note that these things that happen to you and what happened to the to to his family and the characters in the play because that's really what it's based on it just shows like it, it just shows like a light slowly dimming you know to to get to the point of darkness. You know, and every time you try to move out of that, you know, that shadow, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's really what it is, because it's, it's really the process of, of dehumanization. You know, it's beyond just taking away from the liberty of, of a human being, you know, because you, you, you have to do more and more to compromise your values to a certain extent just to be able to survive, not knowing what's going to happen to yourself next. And that's really what the, the scariest thing about a, a play like that is. And I'm sure that's probably why the, the, the communists clamped down on him so much. You know, because they, they were probably saying to himself, holy moly, this guy is writing some stuff that we're doing. It, it, it might make an impression on people. And this is why I'm, I'm talking about him in this particular show not only for the literary sense of it, and, and, and it's important that we talk about that, and we're going to continue to do so. But I have a personal connection with, with him in many ways, because not only was that one of the first plays that, that I read outside of English plays, um, not that I didn't read any plays from, from people from Russia or Norway and etc., but it was really one of the first plays I, I, I read that it really explained, I, I felt in many ways, in, in a dramatic fashion, what happens to the human person under communism, and, and and it got me excited in a sense that I was upset that man, this guy's be put in jail because he wrote a play. Now I granted that in America we we get used to lots of things and maybe there's lots of things we take for granted, uh, but uh, I have known no one in my history. Uh, in my family or even in my neighborhood that got arrested and put in the jail for writing something. <laughs> I've known people who threw rocks in the windows and did some false fire alarms. A couple people, some fist fights. I knew somebody that shot somebody else one time with a gun and they went to, and they went to jail. But all of these things, they seem quite normal and quite civil and, and, and quite legitimate. Where literally, let me get this straight here. He writes a play and then he goes to jail for four years. Okay. Because that makes sense. Only in that sick communist world would that make sense. Because anywhere else it would make no sense. And it just tells us something about, like I always say on this show, the power of the word. It's just, it's no joke. 
And every time you feel doubtful, every time you might lose faith in your work, every time you get set about what you think someone's going to listen to or what they're not, if anyone cares or are they not, just think about someone like that in jail. Tortured. They tortured him many times, hoping that maybe maybe they could break him. Maybe, maybe they can make him write plays about communism. Other artists have done this before, especially in Russia. Joined the system. Oh man, I'm writing, I'm writing about socialist realism, okay? I'm still a writer. Yeah, okay. I don't care who you are and, and what government you have or what monarchy it has. If you're on their payroll, you're no longer a writer. You're just a propagandist. Mr. Havel, he remained a writer. He remained a writer before. He remained a writer during the jail. He remained a writer after the jail because he never gave up any of his convictions or his friends or his activities or anything. I tell you, from the entire perspective, that's somebody we love. Somebody they call a stand-up man because that, that's what he was. But he said it in his own writings and his own quotes, which we'll get to over here, that it's not really a question of trying to be a politician or trying to be a, a hero rebel or trying to be a statesman or anything else other than being who you are and knowing what is true. That's it. And those kind of people, they're just not going to be broken. They'd rather just die then. Not in a suicidal fashion. Not of, I, I can't wait for you to, to torture me to death. Just in the way of, I guess that's going to have to come first, death, because all these other things are not going to change. And how could they? He knew what life was before that evil system. It's what informed his life. It's informed his writing. I tell you, it's going to inform his future as we go along the show and you find out. It's pretty incredible. Okay? So... That's his first really big play. Loved it. It's very important. It had a huge, huge effect. It, it got published all over the place, uh, even after he got put in jail. In fact, I, I, this is what these dummy uh, communist uh, regimes always do. They, they want to bring in more attention to the writing and to the writer by these dumb things they do than anything else. They, they would actually have been smarter if they just said, yeah, we don't agree with that crap, but you know, keep putting it on. We're just going to ignore you. But they just, they can't take the chance. They can't take the chance that no one's not going to listen to that stuff and and then and erode their power. And that's all they, they work on is that type of fear. Even though on the practical level, ignoring it probably would be more helpful than giving it more attention. But they don't know how to think that way. That would be too much common sense for people like that. So, he definitely benefits from that in terms of uh, being a writer and, of course, being, a, at that point, an official dissident. Because at that point, <laughs> he is a dissident and he gets to be known all over the place because of that. I know, it, it is just pretty pretty damn incredible. So, I got to know more about who he was and what he was doing once I joined the Air Force. And then when I joined the Air Force, I went to West Germany. And there, when I went over to the Frankfurt Book Fair, that's when that's when I got upset because I literally saw a booth there for Czechoslovakia uh, putting out books, and I'm literally yelling at this guy, "How the hell can you be publishing books? You people don't believe in literature. You don't believe in freedom. You imprisoned one of your greatest writers and, and playwrights. You're going to be over here selling books with the rest of the world? How dare you!" And I grabbed the guy. He tried to take a swing at me, which didn't work out too well for him because that didn't connect. And then they called the security on me so they can escort me out of uh, the Frankfurt Book Fair. I was able to sneak back in with a couple of friends like about an hour later. <laughs> they were just like, you might want to stay away from that table. I'm like, yeah, that's cool because I'm going over to the South African one here next. <laughs> Had some words for them as well. But... It was, it was something to definitely get me upset about because uh, as, a, as a writer, as somebody that, that believes in, in freedom, as somebody there to make sure that these this kind of uh, criminal enterprise, which is really what communism is, wouldn't cross over to the border, over to where we're at, and to the rest of Europe. 
But I, I find it even more obscene than anything that they're going to imprison the writer for words. Protesting on the street with words. Uh, not throwing rocks, not shooting guns, not trying to assassinate the, uh, you know, the Czechoslovakian communist puppet leader. No, none of that stuff. Words. And that's what really got me upset. And it, and it upsets me to this day when I hear about it around the world. It's just truly disgusting. It's why I talk so much about writing, especially around the world. Now, like I was mentioning before, Václav Havel did something that hasn't been done very much before. It's quite, it's quite rare. I don't mean this in any kind of demeaning way towards writers, but many times writers can be philosophical, even political, even to the point of getting involved in parties, political parties, or getting involved into systems and governments and all that, that to try to, you know, impose upon everyone else their ideals about how the world should be better. In fact, unfortunately, many writers went over to the communist side of things. Or even the, the, the socialist side. And I don't mean the socialist democratic side. Because that's different than this, this socialist itself. Okay? Believing that that would be a, a better world that can be built with that. Even though we all know now, regardless of what's going on here in America, which is a sad irony we'll talk about here shortly, doesn't work. It's a failure all over the place. If you need any more evidence, you could just look at Venezuela. This is the most recent evidence, and I'll severe here in, 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 the, in the, this part of the world. Okay? In less than 20 years, one of the wealthiest countries in South America to the poorest. Just in 20 years, a country that, that was full of uh, scientists and, and brilliant people, they're all gone. They're either in jail, shot, or, or they escaped someplace. Brain drain, all the money drain, everything drain. Why? Because they thought somehow this socialist dream was going to work. Well, it's a nightmare. It's not a dream. It doesn't work. Now, Mr. Havel did something that very few people had done. He actually was able to transition from writer to an actual politician that was effective. And it's, it's pretty incredible because, like I said, most of the times when they do something like this, it doesn't work out very well. They don't tend to be very effective. Mainly because they're still stuck with their head in the clouds and they forget that they still have to deal with people. And governing anybody under any circumstance, I don't care if you're a communist, you're a Nazi, or, 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 or if you're a, a, a democrat in a free society, not only is it a lot of hard work, it's a lot of senseless, boring work. It's a lot of dankless work. Okay? It's not just grand things about figuring out how to get people free education or figuring out how people get cheaper health care. It's boring stuff like, uh, is the water going to poison me? Uh, how do I get this uh, pipe system to work so people don't have uh, poop flushing into their house? How do you keep the, you know, the roofs from, from falling in? How do you keep the, 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 the holes from appearing in the street? All the mundane things you need for modern society. I'm not even talking about modern luxuries. I'm just talking about the necessities of life. Boring. And often thankless. But that's what you do when you're doing in government. It's also about that too. It's not all about that, all that sexy big policy stuff. Most of it's crap. Literally dealing with crap. And this is where a lot of people who are creative, uh, once they go into the reality side of things, don't do too well in. Because they're like, what the hell is this? They're asking me about water rights and, and taxation? What the hell? Yeah, because that's what most of government is. No matter what it is. I don't care, like I said, if it could be a fascist regime or it could be a democratic regime. In the end, they also have to deal with that crap. No matter who you are, no matter what uniform you wear, and what, what thought you have in your head... That stuff isn't going to attack. It's not going to stop. Need the water flowing. Need to figure out who's going to get the taxes paid. Need to figure out how you're going to be able to pay this thing and do that. And cops and firemen, all that crap. Not very sexy. Not very interesting. 
Sahabul was able to transition to get into this. Uh, he had said in a number of interviews, and I agree with him because I've seen enough historical evidence, that he helped a great deal on when the communists finally realized, by 1989 by the way, that's when the, when the wall came down in, in uh, East Germany, um, in, into West Germany. Well, I was there when that when that happened, actually. Uh, but they also had realized that you know they have to start learning how to uh, operate the country without communists, uh, even though they still work with them. When when the communists realized that the, these protests, which continued on, were, were now going to actually succeed, there was going to be no more Russia helping them to back to break that like they did in '69. That wasn't going to happen in '89. That was done. They're going to be. They're going to have to either deal with it, and they did. They worked together to make a coalition government. He helped a great deal of that to happen because they trusted him as one of the most well-known and respected of the dissidents. He also helped to dissolve the Warsaw Pact. That's all those formerly East European communist countries, so they can be free of that, and be free of Russia's influence, and be free to where they can actually become their own countries again. And he had to help unravel that. And he mentioned to us again a lot of the the minutia that the historians forget about and that the newspapers forget about. Well, how do you unravel all of this without dealing with all the financial impacts of that? All the money that was coming in, all the different trade goods, all of that stuff that used to be there. How do you unravel that successfully? He helped do a lot of that. He did a lot of negotiation, a lot of that. So... But a few years later, they, they wind up having a free election there in Czechoslovakia, and he gets voted in as the president. So he literally becomes a president from playwright uh, to imprisoned playwright to free dissident to president of the entire country. So this is what freedom does. You go from a bum to a, to a hero in no time. <laughs> If you want it, if you're willing to work for it, if you're the person that has the integrity, and, and he had all of that and more. But things are not always so rosy in these kind of situations because, and this is really the test of a, of a, a literary person, but also a, a person that has a vision about about his country and, and, and about the future that it should have. And this is also something that unfortunately had happened in, in many, many parts of what was called the formerly the the the, the Warsaw Pact, or those countries that used to be under the Soviet rule, we see this later on in uh, in Serbia and in Bosnia how that happens. But unfortunately, when you get controlled by a system like communism, what they often have done is they wind up putting in lands, they put in cultures and everything all mixed together, one big mash saying none of that stuff matters anymore because you're really just communist comrades and you're just citizens of the socialist republic and you know we're all brothers in arms and blah 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 that stuff matters, trying to brainwash people but you know if you speak a different language from them and you have a different culture maybe you even have some different religious beliefs because they didn't even have any actually, well you might put that to a side for a little while, just because you don't want to get shot. But once you're free, that stuff comes back. It doesn't go away. You don't just tuck history someplace and it, it goes away. People seem to forget that. It's not such an easy thing to erase or delete as much as people might want it to, to be that way. It doesn't work that way. And what many people had forgotten was, well, Czechoslovakia is actually two countries, the Czechs and the Slovaks. That's why they call it Czechoslovakia. And once they became a free country again, well, you know, they, they have a presidency now, but they also have sort of like a, a, a Congress or a parliament like in, in many other countries that are free that, you know, sort of balances the power. Well, you got a lot of people in that parliament though, that, that, that they're on the Slovak side of things. Now, it doesn't mean that they wasn't part of the, you know, the uh, the effort to become free because they were. But the, the 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 Czechs had a, you know, a larger role and a bigger hand in all of that, and you know that didn't really sit too well with the Slovaks. 
Now, Havel was criticized during his day, and I'll mention this on the show, just like on a few other things I'm going to mention on the show. I don't believe it's proper at all to talk about somebody who you might greatly admire, who you might incredibly respect, who you know is is definitely a hero, without mentioning things that you might not agree with or might just be mistakes or flaws. That's what makes us human. And I think when we avoid that, you know, you, you want to make people saints instead of humans. And if there was anybody that was human, that would have been Václav Havel. And he even mentioned it in many of his quotes. We'll go with one of those quotes and then we'll go from there. Okay? Here's one of my favorite ones. The salvation of this human world lies nowhere else but in the human heart, in the human power to reflect, in human meekness, and human responsibility. So, yes, as much as I might praise him, there's going to be things we're going to talk about that don't really deserve praise. He's human. It happens. What are you going to do? Um, Mr. Havel did not believe in breaking up Czechoslovakia, which is ultimately what had to happen. Because if it didn't happen, you'd have a secessionist movement, possibly a civil war. Everybody's shooting each other for no for no good reason. And it's still going to be a breakaway republic anyway. So what the hell's the point of all that? But he just didn't believe that it should be broken up. In all his writings and any of his interviews, other than him stating that, he really didn't state too more about what he really believed it shouldn't have been broken up. So we don't really know. We're never going to know. But what we do know is that he was so against it that he wound up he wound up resigning. So after he finished his presidency and they wanted to do this, he resigned. He said, no, I'm not going to be involved in that. I'm not going to be responsible for breaking this place up. Don't know if it's, uh, you know, the, the childhood love of his country, uh, uh, some form of, uh, you know, nationalist patriotism or something, even though in many ways... Uh, no one ever called him a nationalist before, and I, I'm not really going to call him that one either. Uh, maybe of an emotional nationalism, but nothing that would be practical that you can hang a hat on. So we don't really know. I'd just be guessing. But he definitely resigned because he was against that. A lot of people criticize him about that because they thought that in many ways him doing that could have caused it itself a secessionist movement. Because at the time, there really wasn't any big figures there in, in the in the Czechoslovak uh, areas that could take over. But nevertheless, they agreed to separate, and they were able to do it peacefully. And once they began it peacefully, there was a Slovak Republican I, I, a Republic. I, I think it's called Slovenia now, uh, and and then and then you have the um, the Czech Republic itself. So they had two different ones next to each other. This way they can continue with their cultures and their languages. They did it peacefully. There was no war. And thank God that was avoided. You don't get to do a lot of that in, in history. You don't see a lot of those things going on. But he did, take, he did get a lot of internal criticism for that. We forget that on the outside because it's easy to gloss over people's mistakes when you just want to keep praising somebody for an hour on a show. But I don't think it's the right thing to do. And I've learned from traveling around the world that it's actually not the right thing to do. It's better off just to show everything. I mean, you got some places around the world that they, they would rather just everybody to be praised as saints or something because God forbid if you say something that would be considered negative, even if it's true, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna bash you as a racist or something or somebody that hates their culture or, or ignorant or whatever. Or the ugly American, whatever. I'm an American, so, you know, I'll, I'll hear that all the time no matter what I say. That's just, that's just part of being an American. Believe me, I'm used to it. But, um, it's better for us to hear that, to understand that. We don't always understand everything, but we understand that's what he did. Uh, what well, they wanted, they wanted to renominate him as president of the new Czech Republic, and he wanted to decide, okay, I'll run for that. He ran and became president of that. They put together a constitution that was a little odd in the sense that this time in the Czech Republic, different than the Czechoslovakia when it was a, a free country. They put it in the Constitution that the Prime Minister actually had most of the power and that the presidency would be more ceremonial. Now, there's a number of countries that do this. Uh, a perfect example uh, would be uh, Israel. Israel has a, a situation where the president is a ceremonial thing and the Prime Minister is the one that actually makes all the policy, runs around and does all those things. Well, without 
without Havel's real, you know, instigation, because that wasn't the kind of person he was, it wind up being that because of his enormous public stature and his enormous international presence and just just the guys being famous, uh, his presidency wind up getting a lot more power than the constitution of the new Czech Republic even allowed. It just happened that way. Unfortunately, uh, one of his political rivals was the prime minister. So uh, he always recognized that because that guy didn't really care for that very much. He wound up being the, you know, the, the um, I think he wound up being the president after, after Havel. Yeah. But that was a, that was a, <laughs> almost like his political enemy. But nevertheless, they were able to uh, to bring the, the Czech Republic, you know, into fruition into the United Nations. Eventually, they brought it into NATO so that it could be uh, a protected status and, and somebody that could contribute uh, naturally because they, they understood how it was when they didn't have the protection. What happened to them? Country came in, swooped over, and took over them, called the Soviet uh, Union at the time. And he was able to do all of this. Making that transition again from, from, from writer to, to literally to statesman. Now, he also did a number of things that he was enormously criticized for. And, and, I, and I, even though he was criticized, people wasn't trying to remove him from office. They wasn't like protesting on the streets and, you know, demanding him, you know, to be shot or imprisoned or something like that. Or even, even to resign. They were just upset because they understood that even though he did things that he felt was right, it doesn't mean they were always going to have the best results. Sometimes he did things out of what he felt principle. Other times he did things because symbolically he thought they made sense. Sometimes he just did things because this is, this is the things he believed in and he hoped that people would back him. Sometimes they did and, and sometimes they didn't. One of the biggest things he did that was, that was a huge stain on uh, his presidency uh, when he became the president of the Czech Republic is he freed a lot of the political prisoners. In fact, he freed a great deal of prisoners, period. And he felt that, listen, I believe a lot of these people are falsely imprisoned because of the communists. You know, you say one wrong thing, they throw you in jail. So how do I know what even half the stuff they say in his report is true? How do I know that? So... Why, why should we spend our money on these big prisons when a lot of these people shouldn't be in prison in the first place? They should go out there and have their lives, and we should be done with it. On paper, that sounded wonderful. Unfortunately, Mr. Havel never really considered that the fact that inside the prisons that have political people, yeah, that shouldn't have been there, uh, there were also regular people called criminals. <laughs> when when their file said that they were a murderer of five people or something, um, it wasn't like the comments were lying. Uh, they were just murderers, drug traffickers, human smugglers, rapists, child pedophiles. There were all kinds of people in there just besides just political people. Unfortunately, Mr. Havel never recognized that and he released a great deal of them. And his criticism came because once he started doing that, uh, the, the crime rate literally doubled and tripled in, in, only a, in only a year or two. He gave a blanket amnesty so the people didn't even have records anymore. And they were killing people all over the place. Some of these people had to go get hunted down and put back in jail again. Prisons that sometimes they were either underfunded or closed. So it became a social mess there for a while. And it's, an, it's just unfortunate. It says, uh, from I'm reading over here, it says that uh, the criminality had tripled since 1989 when a lot of these people went into jail. He claimed that, hey, they were all going to be released soon anyway, so um, we just get it over with. Unfortunately, that was in inaccurate. So I'm not sure if he was ever able to take responsibility for that. He mentioned it in one of his memoirs to the council and back about this very situation, but you know he defended it as it, it was uh, it was something that was just needed to get done. But unfortunately, he really didn't take the the time to scan who he was releasing, and you know. That cost the that cost the country some you know some and himself some credibility, and unfortunately, some people died because of that. It's just one of those sad things that happens when you make those kind of decisions. But again, he's human; these sort of things happen. 
And we have to look at him in the, in the big picture of all these things. All right? Unlike now where we have a cancer culture, you say one thing from 50 years ago, it's bad. You know, you're evil and it would destroy your entire existence. You know, thankfully, um, we don't have that with him. We, you, you can take everything, what he's done, put it together, and, you, and you'll understand. Another one of his important quotes. I feel that the dormant goodwill in people needs to be stirred. People need to hear that it makes sense to behave decently or to help others. To place common interests above their own. To respect the elementary rules of human coexistence. It's not ironic that I read that just after I told you about him releasing all those prisoners. Because it does tell you a lot about the kind of character of that man and the, the kind of human being that he was. It wasn't like he was trying to be that human being. That's who he was. And that's how we have to take that sort of thing in context of that. He believed there was goodwill in people. He believed that trying to move them in that kind of direction would bring that out. And it did in many instances. Just in this unfortunate instance, that didn't work out too well. Uh, mainly because uh, uh, when it comes to prison, uh, I'm not really feeling there's a lot of goodwill in there. Sorry to say it. Maybe it's uh, hindsight here, but that's the truth, <laughs> you know. And but nevertheless, he tried to see the best in people, and it's part of the engine of who Mr. Havel. That's how Havel was. Somebody that had a positive vision of the future and tried to put that into play. You know, he he tried to make that uh, country more financially independent. He tried to make it uh, a more peaceful and, and, and decent place. He tried to sp spread that message throughout the world, throughout Europe and the places that he traveled, that it was important that uh, you you trusted people, that you didn't have power all concentrated. Very the very democratic things that we need to hear and constantly be reminded about, so that we don't forget, no matter what country we're from democratically of course um, that it's necessary that we need to be reminded of that it's not something we just need to put underneath the bed and don't have to worry about it. it's there and we're, we're good no that's not something we need to stand on it's something that we need to always have out in the daylight I believe and I think he understood that and that's what he was trying to do okay here we go all right. Now he won a number of awards. Ironically, not too many literary awards, which is unusual as heck. Um, one of his important essays, another one I, that I read, especially in his collected editions later on, is "The Power of the Powerless," where he where he wrote what you can do in, in such dire circumstance. To me, it was very similar to the you know to letters in Montgomery that, that Martin Luther King uh, Jr. wrote while he was in prison. Uh, it, it was similar in the sense that you can't believe that because you're in jail and because it looks like the enemy won, that they actually won. That you still had power. And you do still have power. He understood that. And many of the people who got put into jail from Nelson Mandela onward understood that their power wasn't that they continued their beliefs, but that they continued their humanity, that they wouldn't turn into what the enemy was. And I don't mean that you became somebody like a, a, from a distance to a communist while you're still in jail. I mean just the enemy that you became as, as soulless and as cruel and as cynical as they were, that you still believed in people. That it wasn't just a belief out on the street and now they took all your liberties away and you're not, you're wondering anymore. No. You continued to believe that. Because it was your lifeblood. And more than anything else, while you're in that jail, it might have been the only thing that sustained you. Especially if you wasn't a real big believer in God. Or you didn't really have a connection to religion. And you wasn't able to draw any power or faith from that. Then, then you believing in your principles, in your ideals, in the things that you know is true, might be the only thing that, that shields you from becoming just like them. No matter how many times they beat you, or show you films, or read crazy things to you, or burn your, your books or your, or your plays in front of your eyes, or beat your friends to, to, to make you talk. It's not like you having sympathy for the enemy, or even sympathy for yourself. It's just about maintaining what you know is true and that nothing that they're going to do is going to break you that you come out of there 
and it's just like when you went in there. You haven't changed who you are at the core. And that's exactly who Vakov Kava was. Still a writer, still a thinker, still a philosopher, somebody that believed in people more than he believed in systems. He won a numerous amount of awards for, for pretty much uh, his philosophical and political work because uh, it's, it was powerful and, and inspiring and, and helped many people. Uh, uh, the Russians used to call the, 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 the chat books or a little mini book that you make underground the Sounds of Dot. That's what they used to call it. They made a Sounds of Dot just with that essay, The Power of the Powerless, so that many people can read it in many different languages. To this day, it's still used with what's going on right now in other parts of the world. They're still reading this on the ground in China. In Miramar. So it's still a big part of what's going on in the world to this day. Because what he has to say is, is really timeless. We won't have a planet, let alone a free society, if we don't really continue to cling on to what Mr. Havel had, had taught us. And he taught us with his example, and he taught us with his sacrifice, he taught us with, with the scars on his back and the, and the bruises on his face. That words matter. That ideas can, can, can rise you up. That you can go from the basement to the, to the, to the heavens. And that nothing can stop you. Including people like that. I still believe one day we'll, we'll see more and more of that around the world. More and more freedom. I've just come to believe in my old age and as a military veteran that it might be better to help people from the distance and let them find their own way to freedom rather than do uh, with America and uh, the country I love has done for the last 30 or 40 years has done it in good faith and has done it with the belief that we're trying to help but maybe it doesn't help to try to get people towards freedom if they have societies and are not ready for it so we, we have to recognize what we've done that didn't work and understand that when people are ready we should be there to stand by them and help them whatever we can but until then they have to find their own way to freedom. We can't really impose it. We can't really, you know, coerce it. We certainly can't land ourselves over there and just think that people are going to say, "Yeah, you're here now, Americans. Let's uh, let's get some freedom." I, I think we spend a little too much money, too much time, and too much of our own blood here in America, which some people forget as they get mad at us about this and about that. That wasn't just missiles we sent over there to various places around the world it was our children so let's not any of us forget that and we don't forget at all what Mr. Havel has done and, and how he pointed us in the way to this day uh, the uh, the Prague airport is named uh, the Václav Havel airport so they named even the airport after him which is great because I can't believe that there's anyone else in the Czech Republic more that deserved that you go into the country and you, you hear about him, you know about him, and you're excited. Now, about 20 years after he stopped writing playwrights, he, he wound up writing another play called Leaving. And it, it's a kind of a tragic comedy, and it was pretty much about when he was a president and how he's kind of like battling his, his uh, prime minister, like we talked about, and his political enemy, and, and all those things that he went through. So it was, it's quite autobiographical. Uh, thankfully, uh, no one tried to ban it because he was in a free society that he helped create. And it went on to success. It, it premiered in uh, 2008. And then he wound up able to get uh, the financing and direct a film based on it. Uh, it's the same year that he died uh, because he, he wound up uh, uh, contracting, uh, I believe, lung cancer for the second time. I know he lost his wife from the same thing. He's just a you know, um, a chain smoker, so that's what it'll do to you, unfortunately. But that is it. And I wouldn't say in a nutshell, because it's, it's, it's pretty complex to, to hear all that this man has done 
and a relatively short life. I mean, it's just amazing uh, the life he had and all that he's done, and literally the changed the world. One man, one play, words. So please don't sit back there and say, "I don't know what I'm doing. I don't care." But there be people. Don't. Please, all that crap. Okay. If you really don't believe in what you're doing, then maybe you should stop writing. But I'm telling you now. Maybe just give it a break for a day or two. You'd be surprised how you make a rebound. Come back stronger. Give yourself a little bit more perspective. Fear doesn't have to win. But sometimes you have to give yourself a breather just so you can kind of like grow it up again to face that fear and then beat it and go on ahead. So, I don't know. It's what I think the military guys call the strategic re retreat. <laughs> we we like to use these words so we can you know you know maintain our, our masculinity or, or make ourselves look stronger than we are. But quite frankly, whatever you want to call it, a break, a pause, retreat, vacation. You call it whatever you want to call it. But fear doesn't have to remain. You just got to figure out a way to get back strong again. And then you can continue to write. So you don't have to give it up. If you don't want to give it up. You just can't pressure yourself to think that you're always going to be creative every day. That you're always going to have time for this or for that. It doesn't make you any less of a writer. It doesn't make you any less committed. You got to give yourself some room sometime. One of the last quotes from... Uh, Thoughts of Havel, one of the ones I really liked because it, it really told a lot about somebody that on the outside you look at some kind of revolutionary hero, but he had a different view of himself. You do not become a dissident just because you decide one day to take up the most unusual career. You are thrown into it by your personal sense of responsibility, combined with a complex set of external circumstances. You are cast out of the existing structures and placed in a position of conflict with them. It begins as an attempt to do your work well, and it ends with being branded an enemy of society. So he was trying to tell us in a paragraph, literally what some people write in an entire book, that many a times people have not decided through their own willpower or even through their own strategic plan to become some famous person, to become some incredible hero, to become some successful rebel, to even become some incredible, powerful, respected statesman. Sometimes it's just a question of you keep getting thrown into circumstances that are often beyond your control, the circumstances, and only that's in your control is how you continue to react and adjust to them, but still maintain your principles. You'll find this very, very, very close to the lives of someone like Harry S. Truman. Read something about him. You'd be surprised about where this man came from and how successful a president he wound up being. Thrown in there, literally, at the dead of night, because Roosevelt had died. A man that literally took the oath to become the United States president and literally saying seconds later, man, I'm not ready for this. I, what do I do? <laughs> or someone like, and, and, and the, the man wrote volumes, and, and we, we have thousands of books on, on, on Winston Churchill. And there's plenty of movies about him, and they're quite accurate. You're never going to find somebody in the history <laughs> other than maybe Moses in the Bible, who nothing looked like it was really preparing him for who he became. I mean, in all accounts, he's a drunk. He's a slobbered. He's unsuccessful in business. Uh, people politically do not like him. His candor, unfortunately, in politics, which is not, a, not exactly a popular thing, wasn't exactly one of his best weapons. But what happens? Chamberlain gives up the, the ghost with his stupid deal with Hitler that makes no sense. And the country is now in deep doo-doo. I got to say that because, you know, we're on the network. I'm not allowed to curse. And this man emerges. Somebody that nobody ever believed can do anything. 
Yeah, he's just going to drink a lot. Yeah, he's just going to yell at people a lot. Yeah, he's just going to throw his shoe at, at secretaries. What does he do? He winds up becoming one of the greatest leaders that England had ever have. The exact person for the job during the time of England, where it's literally getting rained down by missiles. The first country in the history of mankind to be attacked by missiles. That was literally hitting the cities and burning them. Nothing like the aim that we have now. Nothing like the explosive we have now. They're very rudimentary, but nevertheless, extremely effective. The terror that came from them. The burning. The, the death. How that wore down who you are. Yeah, he's still over there telling people. We're going to make it. We're going to beat these people. We're going to get this together. That's what a leader is all about. That's who they needed at that time. Who would have ever expected it? You look at Abraham Lincoln, you won't see anything about who he was as a statesman. Again, just like Harvard reminds us, you get thrown into that sort of thing. Circumstances literally sway you into that, and now you've got to be somebody you didn't even know you were going to become. You didn't even know you have it in you. And it comes out. I felt just like Mandela. And Mandela wasn't a writer. Mandela was a lawyer. He was a political activist. And later on, he, he became somebody that you could probably safely say was uh, some sort of a terrorist before he got imprisoned. But he wasn't a writer. But he wound up doing the same things that all these other great leaders did. When he got Once he got power, it didn't go to his head. He didn't go to the dark side of, the, of his nature. He didn't go to the, the easy paths. They wind up doing the things that were necessary to keep the nation together, to make it move forward in a positive direction. People to this day still criticize. I just wish he didn't believe they should have been broken up and that this really seemed to be childish. Maybe that was the best way he could handle something that otherwise he couldn't handle. Because it wouldn't have been hard for him otherwise to have just said, you know, made all these names and all these rude accusations, and next thing you know, you have a civil war. What did he do? He just kept quiet about it and resigned. I'm sorry that's not exactly um, historically sexy, but if you now look at it in hindsight, it might have been the, the, the most moral thing that somebody can do under that circumstance. Yeah, it put people back. Kind of made people like, what the... But... It also gave the room for them to do what they had to do, which naturally had to get done. And it wound up getting done in a peaceful manner. Many of us are not going to make that transition into politics. Too much of uh, many of us writers here today, whether they're in America or somewhere else, we seem to forget that. We seem to think that just because uh, we know a little bit more about the human condition or, or maybe we just know a little bit more about the news because you watch it a little bit closer to the average person that... Somehow, um, our ideas and our thoughts is, is going to be able to, to change the world. But maybe we should just be worrying about just writing what we believe to be true and trying to make a connection with somebody. Because that's what we're supposed to do as writers. Maybe that's how the world slowly starts changing, by doing that. We all can't aim to be a Churchill or a Havel or a Mandela or a Lincoln. And the reason why we can't end it is because we just talked about that. Only circumstances allow that to happen for the few. The rest of us, let's still stay with be writers and understand the impact about what many of these men have told us. And women in some cases. We'll talk about others. I know we had a few on the, the show in the past and we'll have some more in the future as well. But it's necessary to continue to remind people that as Americans as might sound, I can't apologize. I must who I am. But freedom isn't free. It is purchased by the blood of heroes and by the sacrifices of those that went before us who literally allowed themselves to be put in jail versus to turn themselves over to a system they simply knew was not going to do anything to help the country or help the world. It's just a, a criminal evil system. 
We still have it going on in parts of the world. There's still people that need to be free. And all we can do is make sure we write the truths that we know it. Maybe some of those people will listen to that and understand what we're trying to do. And what he's trying to do. And what he did. That's how we become the people we're supposed to become. That's how the writers we're supposed to become. That's how we become that. By keep writing, keep believing. And not falling for anything. My final word on all of this is probably a, a, just a, a measure of disappointment. Because over the last couple of years here in, in the United States, you know, we've had all this big social unrest. And unfortunately, too many of the people involved out there on the streets belong to organizations that sound quite similar to communist Czechoslovakia. Not much difference in some of the things they ask for. If America has failed anywhere in the world on what we were trying to do about pushing back that and, and allowing people to be free, I don't, I don't believe we failed in what we did with Russia. We did our best we could to, to keep that place to, to be free. And if it went back to that, that's that's up to those Russian people and what they voted and what they allowed to happen. We can't be everywhere. We can't do anything. But I, be, I think our biggest failing is we haven't done enough to, to educate our own public about the sacrifices that our military has made. I don't mean just recently in the last 20 or 30 years with all this terrorism and Iraq and Afghanistan and all of that. I mean just even during the Cold War. Everything we did. It seems right now it, 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 it's a distant memory that most people don't even recognize it anymore. I got to do everything I can to instill it in my children because I don't even believe my educational system anymore does enough to teach that. I mean, how do I hear on the streets the same stuff that I was fighting against while I was serving in West Germany? When I was interviewing people from East Germany, when I worked for uh, United States Intelligence. How? I heard the same things from people from Hungary. I heard the same things from people in Romania. You know, I never heard those people say once, I just, I just love that socialism. Man, that was so great to stay in line for six hours to get some toilet paper and a, and a small piece of meat. I didn't get any high fives or any of that stuff. No one was telling me the wonderful stories. I was there when the wall came down. I saw those people and I saw their faces. And I didn't see a whole lot of giddy faces saying, I can't wait to drink West German beer, you know, and, and dance with girls. I saw people shocked and amazed and, 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 and teary eyed. Some of them almost like transfigured right there in the street. Couldn't believe that what had occurred. The wall was down. That they were in some place free. That someone wasn't going to shoot them because they had something to say other than whatever they were supposed to say. Never heard any of those people on the street saying any of that stuff. That's saying now, more than 30 years afterwards. So let's not forget any of that either. And if we're going to do anything, especially in America, we need to educate more of our own people about what we've done, what we spent. And I don't mean just money. I mean in our lives and our sacrifices, the years away from our family and foreign destinations. Not knowing if someone's going to shoot us or blow us up. For years, I put a mirror underneath my car. And when I left my house, because I didn't live on the base anymore, just to make sure that there's not a bomb under there. That's the kind of life I used to have to live. Listening to the women tell me that Almost every day they were raped by their bosses because it's the commonest thing to do. And don't worry about it, honey. We'll get you an abortion so you don't have to worry about having another child in your family. We got that covered. That was the system those people lived under. I never heard any good things about any of that. I only heard the horrors and I saw the horrors. So I don't even know if we've done enough to say how great men like Vaclav Havel was. What he did for his country, what he did for the world, how his words and his experiences still live on to not only inspire us, but to remind us that 
we can't really be human unless we're free. We really can't be writers unless we can express stuff without threat of imprisonment or death. It's okay with the criticism. That's normal. You're going to get that, and we should expect that. But not someone knocking on midnight at the door. Not some guy hitting you over the head with a stick who could barely read, talking about something's wrong with your work. You haven't even read it. You can't even read. What are you talking about? Doesn't matter. Somebody told him to do this. There's still that world out there. Less than it was 50 years ago. But it's still out there. Let's try to keep that in mind when we're writers. That the world, it needs more people like that. It needs more people who are willing to write. It needs more people that are willing to stand up for what they believe in. It needs more of that. It doesn't need people who are looking away or running away or hiding away. Let's be more than that. It really isn't that difficult to start in your own community or maybe even in your own family and go from there. Sometimes for writers, and a lot of writers tell me that, and you'll probably find this to be true as well, sometimes writers wind up finding their better selves after writing for a while. You have to see what's going on. Sometimes they find that. Sometimes they find their strength. They find their faith. They find who they are. Their identity. Because of writing. And then from there they can go and do other things that maybe that, that make the world better. Let's try to keep that in mind. I know it happened for me that way. I know a lot of other writers it's happened to too. I hope that this is the same for you. That it will happen for you if it hasn't happened already. To keep doing that. To, to keep trying to find the essential truths about who you are and what you can communicate to others. Alright folks, until next time, God bless. This is Mark Anthony Rossi, Strength to be Human. That was a classic Spotlight series, Thoughts on Vaclav Havel, episode 208. Good night. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.